If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalms 2. We want to consider Psalms, the second chapter this morning, and the title of the message is Kiss the Sun. Kiss the Sun. And that's S-O-N, of course. Let's read Psalm 2. I don't usually read a whole psalm, but I want you to get the whole context of this as we consider this this morning. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That's Jesus. Saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sword of displeasure. And this is what He says. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me. This is the Son now responding to the Father. Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me. And I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. As we consider the subject of kiss the sun this morning, I don't want you to think about a boyfriend and girlfriend kiss or a husband and wife kiss, okay? Or a a mama or a daddy, you know, kissing their little fella on the cheek. That's not the type of kiss that's under consideration. I want you to think about when great men of the world come together in council or in meetings, and you will specifically see this when anyone goes, any great man of state or dictator or king or president or whatever, often when they go and visit the Pope in Rome, you'll see them kiss his ring in an act of respect and honor of his actual position. Now listen, I don't know if you know this or not, but Rome is actually, that tiny little city is a nation. <laughs> it's the craziest thing. You know, so Rome is actually a nation in this world. That, that little city is a nation. So when you see these presidents and others going around meeting with one another, I think a few weeks ago you, you, somebody was posting online, you know, how this president interacted with this other leader of state and so forth. That's what it's referring to when it says kiss the sun. The kiss that is under consideration is the respect that is given to a king or to a ruler or to a leader. Okay. Now we're a little bit foreign to that type of imagery because we're not living in a day where there are these type of physical kings that rule the world as it did in these days that it was written. You know, David was the king that ruled Israel. He didn't rule the world. He ruled Israel. And he was a unique individual. You have other men like Nebuchadnezzar who, if you didn't hold your posture just right when you came into Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, when you came into his presence, if you didn't have the right kind of look on your face, it's off with your head. And you had to pay obeisance. You had to pay respect and honor to that type of king. As red-blooded Americans, we'd be like, I'm not kissing the king's ring, or I'm not not bowing down to any king. (laughs) You know, that's a new thing in the last several hundred years. It it just, the, the nation of America is unique in that we don't have that type of dynamic. But we need to understand that there is a king over all kings. 
And His name is Jesus Christ. And that's what this is about. This psalm is about the kings of the earth gathered together and say, we don't need God. He doesn't have any influence on us. He doesn't have any control over us. We'll break His bands asunder. Men and women of the world and in, in leadership positions for centuries and, and millennia have tried to break the bands asunder of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and they haven't done it yet. And they're not going to. You know, today is Easter, right? Well, we should celebrate the resurrection every day. It's not just to be celebrated once a year. But there's a reason that this is on my mind. Because the reason that people... Kings, queens, presidents, dictators. The, the reason, prime ministers, the reason that they've never been able to break the bands asunder of God is because they can't cheat death. But there's one that didn't cheat death. He defeated death. And that's why he's the king of kings. You can't find the grave of Jesus Christ. That's why he is superior to all kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and dictators of the world. So I want to talk to you about some kings this morning <laughs> in a little different way. I want to talk to you about, you say, well, we're kind of far into the effect of kings. Yes, in the sense that this is written in terms of a physical king sitting on a throne, but we are not immune to the false king, to Satan, and his devices that have an impact on you sitting here today. And we're going to go through a little bit of that. If you don't like history, well, I hope you don't snooze, but you're probably not going to like this sermon if you don't like a little bit of history, because we're going to cover about a hundred year period. And we're going to talk about some kings. I want to talk to you about the kingdom of humanism, naturalism, which has come into existence. In a, and it's always been in existence, but it's come into power. Let me put it that way in a relatively short period of time. And it's because of these kings that I'm going to talk to you about. There's five of them. The first king that we're going to talk about is a king known as Charles Darwin, who is the father of the theory of evolution. It's only a theory, never been proven, never can be, never will be. But I want you to think about how that man who, in a sense, is a king, has such an impact along with these other men today. And then we're going to see how that relates to our subject this morning. And you ask yourself the question, does this kingdom have an impact on me today? I think your answer, you'll see, will be yes. Tremendous impact. So as we consider humanism, let me just tell you what that means. The kingdom of humanism is we don't need God. That's what it means. Most humanists are atheists that say, you know, there is no God and we just don't need God. You know, we've got it all figured out and we can live in a natural way and achieve the highest existence that we can achieve. That's what humanism means. You know, when it comes to the evolutionary theory, it's, I like the old saying the preachers use, you know, you, it says that you go from goo, some kind of primordial soup, from goo to the zoo to you. That's how you got here, from goo to zoo to you. And one of the champions of that type of thinking was a man named Stephen Hawking. Now, I haven't included him in this five, but he is worth mentioning. Stephen Hawking, who's one of the, the, considered to be one of the smartest men in the world when he passed away, one of the last works that he did, basically he reached a couple conclusions, and I'm going to summarize them. You can go read them. It's not, it's not that difficult of a read. But basically he concluded that because gravity existed, that 
the universe was born or came into existence. Well, of course, you know, that kind of begs the question, where did gravity come from, right? So there's never an answer. There's always hypothesis and suggestions. And ultimately, the smartest man who was considered to be the smartest man on the planet, if you'll read his last work, he concluded at the end of his writing that we must have come from aliens. Y'all hear me? I'm not making that up. We must have come from aliens. That's what the humanist says. You see? And I'm going to tell you, it takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe in a Creator God. And there's less evidence for that than there is for the Creator God. Now, you say, well, is humanism really a religion? Yes, it is a religion. <laughs> it's a faith. You have to believe in it. To Anything that you have to put faith in, it's a religion. And by the way, the top chaplain at Harvard University, Harvard University was begun all those years ago by a man who wanted to train preachers. No telling how many times he's rolled over in his grave. But there's 30-something chaplains on staff at Harvard of all different types of faiths and denominations. And among those chaplains, they've elected one guy at this point who is the head chaplain. And he is an atheistic humanist. <laughs> so don't tell me that atheistic humanism is not a religion. It is a religion. It takes belief in order to put any kind of faith in it. Now, we're talking about the kingdom of humanism. And I want you to see how in a short period of time that Satan, who is not limited by living a life and dying, he's been around since the dawn of time. I want you to see how Satan has manipulated that kingdom of humanism to come into such power today. Okay? As we consider Psalms 2, wine of the heathen rage, they cast the bands asunder of God and say there is no God. We don't need God if there is a God. So the first king I mentioned is Charles Darwin. Now listen, I'm going to give you some facts. You don't have to write them down unless you're a real fast writer. But I want you to learn a little bit about these people. Okay? The first one is Charles Darwin. Born in 1809, died in 1882. And in 1859, and I want you to see we're dealing with basically from 1859 to about 1962. About a hundred year period. These five men, and many others could be named, but primarily these five men have such an influence on the kingdom of humanism. Charles Darwin was the first. In 1859, he wrote and brought out On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. Now listen, you don't hear the second part of the title very much because it's not politically correct. <laughs> or the preservation of favored races in the struggle of life. Did you know that Charles Darwin proposed eugenics? You know what that is? You can look it up. That's population control. And it's also getting rid of the races that are just not good enough <laughs> as the superior races. That's what Charles Darwin believed. And another lady, Margaret Sanger, picked up that teaching and she founded Planned Parenthood, by the way. That's where all this stuff comes from. She was a believer in eugenics, which is murder. <laughs> and it's also what you would know today as extreme racism. By the way, there is no such thing. The idea of racism is ridiculous because there's only one race. We all bleed red, you see? So the very proposing of, hey, there's racism and there's these different races, there can be ugliness and meanness towards each other, but we're all one race. The people that are pushing racism are trying to poison your mind to think that there's different levels in existence of, of races. There's only one race, and God created that race. It's humankind. And as long as we listen to that, those that are pushing that hate about racism, then you can't expect anything to get any better. So, Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species 
dethroned God from the plant and animal kingdom. He took God out of biology, the biological sciences. That's what Darwin did. Took God out of the biological sciences. Now listen, Romans 1 and 25 says, they changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. That's what you got. Psalm says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You may think that you came from a monkey, but I did not. Don't insult my wife by telling me that she came from a monkey. She's too beautiful to come from a monkey. You understand? You didn't come from a monkey. You didn't come from goo to zoo to you. The evidence of biology does not support that. And you, if you dig and you search and you find, you'll find creation scientists out there that make more logical sense than any theory of evolution that's ever been. Okay? So the first king is Charles Darwin. By the way, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but legend says, some stories say that on his deathbed, Charles Darwin recanted the theory of evolution. You won't hear that much in the colleges today. <laughs> you won't read that in the newspapers. The next king that we want to talk about is a fellow named Karl Marx. He was a German atheist, and he lived from 1818 to 1883, and in, he's known as the father of communism. And in 1848, he came out with a pamphlet called the Communist Manifesto and a three-volume series through about a 20-year period called Das Kapital, in which he promoted the idea of communism as the answer to the political science. So you got Darwin taking God out of biological science, biology, and now you've got Karl Marx taking out God from politics. And by the way, he's the one that said that religion was used to oppress the masses and it was the opiate or the drug of the masses. Did you know what? Karl Marx died of liver failure from alcoholism at a young age. And by the way, the mass murderer Joseph Stalin perfected the teachings of Karl Marx. When Stalin took over Russia, he murdered people left and right. The first people that he murdered were the preachers. <laughs> That's a fact. He had to get those nasty little preachers out of the way because they were preaching free thinking and, and freedom from sin type of thinking. It's a fact. He killed the preachers first. So Karl Marx proposed the idea of communism. By the way, Mao Zedong did the same thing in China, took that and perfected it, murdered untold millions of people. That is the end result of taking God out of the politics, political science. Okay, the end result of taking God out of biology is, well, you think you're just nothing but a monkey. <laughs> and people act like animals because what? I'm not any better than an animal. Now, the next guy I want to mention to you briefly is a king. I'm referring to them as kings. You understand they, weren't, they didn't really sit on over a nation. But they are kingly in their influence. A fellow named Frederick Nietzsche. He lived from 1844 to 1900. And you see how these are moving down through time? You know, you got Darwin first, then you've got... Marx, a little later, and next you've got Nietzsche. Don't think that these things were just random occurrences. Friedrich Nietzsche was a German philosopher, and he despised Christianity. He helped to kick God out of the kingdom of philosophy. He was a philosopher. He used Darwinism to teach the formation of the Superman. And by the way, Adolf Hitler perfected that because he proposed the master race, the race of supermen. You see how wicked men take the ideas, the foolish 
natural ideas of humanism and just carry it to its extreme. And what do you got? You got bloodshed. You got murder. So you got Frederick Nietzsche, who his ideas were perfected by a fellow named Hitler. It was Nietzsche. His magnum opus was Thus Spake Zarathustra. And in that, he proposed that God was dead and we've held his funeral. Okay? He spoke of the German word as Ubermensch, which is where we get the word Superman from. Now, some of you say, I can't relate to that. Yes, you can. You've got an app on your phone right now called Uber. (laughs) Right? I've used Uber all the time. It means superior. It means something above. So the idea of the app that's on your phone is that there's a better way to get transport. You know, you've got Uber. You can just call an Uber. But the word means above or beyond, superior, superior humans. And it is a direct attack in contrast to Christianity, an otherworldliness of Christianity. Okay? It's a direct attack against Christ. Zarathustra proclaimed that the will of the Ubermensch or the Superman was to give meaning to life on earth. And he ties this Superman to the idea that God is dead and can no longer provide you with the values that you need on a day-to-day basis. You know, forget about the Ten Commandments. That's just some kind of figment of somebody's imagination came up with, see? we got to have a new set of ethics. Can we stop at this point after just three kings and say, this is impacting all of us today? Unless you've got your head in the sand. (laughs) A new set of ethics. You know, morality that is relative to your situation. What's good for you may not be good for me. There's no set standard. That's what Nietzsche's ultimate teaching was. We don't need God to tell us what the standard is. Now, this is funny. I love comic books. Okay, Batman was my favorite, but I like Superman too. Brother Chris liked Superman. That was his favorite. I love Batman, but I thought, you know, Superman came up in the 1930s, late 1930s, and it wasn't long after Nietzsche proposed his Superman. And I thought, I wonder if there's a connection. Well, lo and behold, there's a connection. Listen to this. In Nietzsche's work, he says, I will teach you all the Superman. And the term Superman was popularized by George Bernard Shaw in a 1903 play called Man and Superman. Listen to this now. The character Jane Porter refers to Tarzan in Edgar Rice Burroughs' novel, which was another favorite comic of mine. Jane and Tarzan, Tarzan and Jane. Jane refers to Tarzan as a Superman in the 1912 pulp novel, Tarzan of the Apes. And two guys, one whose name was Siegel, later would name Tarzan And that work, and Nietzsche as an influence on the creation of Siegel and Schuster's Superman, the comic. Now, Nietzsche proposes a natural Superman. We're waiting for that Superman to come and save us and lead us where we need to be in this world. And I'm here to tell you that the Superman has already come. Jesus Christ has already come. He is the Superman. Nietzsche's looking for something to offset Christianity, and we want a Superman in the world, and the best you've got is a guy like Adolf Hitler coming up with the murder of millions of Jews based on teachings of Nietzsche. And over here, we've got the real Superman who has saved untold billions of his children, and they will be in heaven with him one day. Which Superman do you want? (laughs) The fourth one we want to talk about Briefly, is a fellow named Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud took God out of the kingdom of the mind or psychology. Now listen, Freud was from 1856 to 1939. He was an Austrian neurologist and the founder of psychotherapy, of psychiatry and such. He is the one that came up with the Oedipus complex. Can't even tell you what that is. It's so vile. 
Go Google just a little bit about Sigmund Freud, and you'll say, like I say, this guy's a pervert. How can a pervert be the founder of modern psychology? And you wonder how we're in the mess that we're in. Not only that, but Sigmund Freud comes up with a paper while he is coming up with his ideas about psychotherapy. He puts out a paper that supports the use of cocaine. You think I'm making this up? It's too good to make up. I don't have the ability to make this up. Sigmund Freud was addicted to cocaine for about 20 years. While he was coming up with all this stuff, no wonder he's a pervert. No wonder he comes up with some outlandish things. You see? Freud, you go, I can't tell you the things that he says about human sexuality. I can't tell you those things from the pulpit. Whereas the Word of God says that of the wicked man, that God is not in all of his thoughts. You see, these are the natural humanists of the world who have come up with their kingdom of humanism and it influences everything that's going on today in a hundred year period. The last one is John Dewey, who is known as the father of modern education. He's American, was American. 1859 to 1952, he put God out of the kingdom of education. I encourage you to go read online the Humanist Manifesto. It's real short, doesn't take long. John Dewey was one of the proponents and original signers of the Humanist Manifesto. And there were two others that followed that were a little bit longer. But he was a proponent of humanism and removing God from education. He was an atheist. And he wanted to completely remove God from the halls of education. Now, about 10 years after he died, there was a Supreme Court case, 1962, Engel versus Vital, where the Supreme Court, under the majority opinion of Justice Hugo Black, wrote that it was a violation of the Establishment Clause for any public school to push a prayer to be said by any of the students. Okay? Now let me just say this. That gave secular humanism an opportunity to create hostility towards Christianity. Okay? That gave secular humanism the opportunity to be hostile towards Christianity when prayer was removed from schools. That's when John Dewey's dream was accomplished. Now don't tell me for a second in that hundred year period that the devil hasn't been at work. Now if you'd have gone up to one of those men and said, hey, you know the devil's using you, they'd have been like, what? I don't even believe in a devil. <laughs> That's how clever the devil is. When he uses people and influences people, they usually don't even know it until it's too late. John Dewey believed that it was not appropriate for God to have any place in education. Look at verse 10 of Psalms 2. He says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. The educators of our land would be wise to be instructed by the Word of God that it's not appropriate to leave God out of education. Now listen, I like to ask questions as an attorney. That's what I like to do. So people say, well, what could be done? Let me tell you where the problem came in. Okay, why the Supreme Court ruled in 1962 such a ruling that in public schools you could not propose prayer or influence anyone? You know, from a legal standpoint, it's a valid argument. The Establishment Clause, it's a pretty valid argument. But here's the problem. How did the government get in control of public schools in the first place? You got that? For thousands of years, somehow, ignorant man has come down through the ages 
without having the federal government of the United States of America tell them what they got to learn, when they got to learn it, what they got to do. <laughs> How did we get down here all these years? The problem is that the public school system was turned over to the federal government. That's the problem. It used to be little individual places and individual people uh, teaching and, and interacting in the communities. You ever seen Little House on the Prairie? <laughs> That looked like a really good life to me. I know some of it's fictional lives, but anyway. So I want to tell you this. The blood of Columbine and the blood of Sandy Hooks and the blood of Stoneman Douglas High School lies at the feet of John Dewey. You say, Brother Tim, those are strong words. I intend them to be strong. That's the result when you take God out of education. People become animals. They don't see their worth and their value through the lens of how God sees people. You see? You're just an animal. Now in these ideas, and I know I've thrown some facts at you here today, in these areas, in the kingdom of biological science, in the kingdom of political science, in the kingdom of philosophy, in the kingdom of psychology, and in the kingdom of education, humanism has removed God from all those things. Don't sit here and tell me that that doesn't have some kind of impact on you today and your children today. It has an impact. It has an impact in the, in the teaching institutions of our land. I'm all for an education. By the grace of God, I got a good education. We should get an education. But don't let this slip away from you that the underlying influence of what is there today for the most part is the humanist agenda. So do you want a creator? <laughs> or do you want Darwin's evolver? Do you want the king of kings or the cruel communists who's going to have austerity campaigns and purge their lands when they have too many people and can't feed them all? Do you want Nietzsche's worldly superman that leads you to a man like Adolf Hitler? Or do you want the Christ superman, the mediator, one mediator between God and men? And do you want Freud's pervert? Or do you want the mind refresher, the renovator of the mind, that, the God who knows our thoughts? See? And do you want the true educator of man, of man's dead heart? Or do you want Dewey's clean slate that says every child is just a clean slate? That is not the teaching of the Scripture. We're born in sin. We come from Adam. And the heart of man needs not reforming. It needs to be touched by the Spirit of God to be something that it's not. So here we go. As we close. Some of you are probably ready for me to close because I don't usually give out that many facts. <laughs> what is the big deal? How can I stand before you here today as just a little old bitty backwoods preacher living out in the country all these years, practicing law over here in the middle of nowhere? How can I stand before you today and say that those kingdoms of men, that humanist kingdom, is not the kingdom that you are subject to? I can tell you that because I ask you these questions. When did Darwin resurrect from the grave? When did Marx resurrect from the grave? When did Nietzsche resurrect from the grave? When did Freud resurrect from the grave? Have you seen John Dewey lately? Only in the papers, only in books. Practically all books, as a matter of fact. Those men have not resurrected from the grave, and they never will on their own power, you see? But I'm speaking to you today of the great resurrector, one who by his own power brought himself out of the grave. If you would look to me to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. Now this man that speaks to you in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, was the top intelligentsia man of the time. He was the most trained in the things not just of religion, but in the things of the land. He was a Roman citizen, and he was the top-notch 
top dog thinker of the time. His name was Saul of Tarsus, and he became known as the Apostle Paul. This man was the top, okay? He was the best thinker of the time. And he says, moreover, verse, 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the, the gospel which I preached unto you, which ye also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. I tell you what I'm telling you here today will save you in the sense that it'll spare you from thinking that you're subject to those kingdoms of Darwin and Nietzsche and Freud and the others. It will spare you from thinking that they ultimately have control over your life. No matter what you've heard or no matter what you've been brought up to think, I tell you that if you keep in mind that there's a king over them, the king of kings, it will deliver you from depression. It will deliver you from thinking there's no hope, as Brother Luke prayed in his prayer. It will deliver you from the things of men to an otherworldly mentality. You don't belong here. The best that you have is not here. It's not ever going to be here. The best you're going to have is in heaven one day when you behold the King of Kings. You say, how can you say that? Because he's not in the grave. You see? That is the linchpin right there. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that's what also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, verse 4, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above 500 brethren at once. Now listen, I've tried a lot of cases through the years. Criminal cases, civil cases. And a case, as we always say, is driven... Primarily by the testimony of the witnesses. And I always make sure when qualifying a jury to tell them or ask them, do you understand that when a witness takes that stand and says, I saw thus and such, that is evidence in a trial. So you might not have a picture of anything. Everybody likes to see videos today. <laughs> a lot of times there are some videos. And a lot of times that's a red-handed deal. You know, somebody's caught red-handed on the video. But we don't always have a video. Sometimes somebody comes in the courtroom in the old-fashioned way and just says, this happened, I saw this. And I always make sure to tell that jury, you understand, that is evidence. When a person says, I saw this, and it looked like this, and it was this color, and this happened, then and this happened after. That's evidence. So I tell you today, here, you understand that this book right here is evidence. It's evidence. For now, it's still accepted. You ever wonder why somebody swears in on the Bible? When they go to court, they put their hand on the Bible, raise their right hand, swear to tell the truth, hold truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. It's because the Bible is an accepted document right now. Now, when the humanist kingdom finally takes over completely, it probably would have thrown out the door. And then, then the question, Brother Luke, would be, which version of the Bible is going to be accepted? You know, they're also watered down, the modern versions. But anyway, it's an accepted document. Now, if I brought 500 witnesses in here to you, and they came in by this door one by one and said, Sir, ma'am, what did you see? I saw Jesus on the cross, and he died. <laughs> okay, what did you see a few days later? Three days and three nights later, I saw him walking around. He was alive. 500 people come in and say that, one testimony after the other. That is irrefutable. You understand? That's what happened in these days. 500 people. And look, it's, it's not just like, well, Brother Luke was over here, and he saw Jesus at one point. That happened to like Mary and some of the others. Or, you know, Brother Furman was over here, and he saw Jesus over here. Or Brother Jim was over here. Or who, whatever, brother. 500 people saw him at one time. You get that? A crowd of 500 people saw him. That's Jesus. I thought he died. <laughs> this is irrefutable. You can't find the grave of Jesus. You see? 
That's why the kingdom of God is far superior to the kingdoms of men. He says he was seen of 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain into this present. There were still people alive at that time that had seen Jesus in person, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James and of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Don't you love how the apostle Paul was, was humble? You know, he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus when the Lord came to him and born him again and gave him life when he was going to kill Christians. Like the humanists of the world wish every Christian would drop off the planet. God touched his heart. And he saw Jesus, the resurrected Son of God. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believe. Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? And the Apostle Paul goes on and he begins to examine what it means if there is no resurrection. We have no hope. I have no message to present to you. I have no ability to impact your life through the preaching of the gospel if I don't have the resurrection of Jesus. We are of all men most miserable. You understand? Let me tell you, no matter how far down you go, no matter how black and dark the, the sky may be in your life, no matter what depths of depression you fall into, or no matter what things of this world turn against you, I tell you, child of grace, because of the resurrection, there's hope because of God in heaven who can impact the lives of His children today. Why? Because He's alive. Darwin can only have a distant influence on you from years and years ago. Nietzsche can only have a distant bad influence on you from years and years ago. Freud, the others, they, can only, they can't sit down next to you and comfort you and console you. They can't come into your heart and enrapture your heart to feel the Spirit of God and know that God is always there. I tell you, God's not dead. He's on the throne today. And it says back in Psalms, the second chapter, it says that he that sitteth on the, on the throne of heaven shall laugh at that. You want to know God's response to the kings like Nietzsche of this world, the Darwins, the Freuds, the others that are there, the Deweys, it says God laughs. When they kick him out of political science, when they kick him out of biological science, when they kick him out of philosophy, when they kick him out of sociology, when they kick him out of education, when they kick him out, he laughs at that. He just goes, <laughs> how silly is that? To think that they can break my bands asunder. Can't be done. He said, well, Brother Tim, what in the world can we do? <laughs> Look at how bad things are. Look at the school killings. Look at the murders and all the different things that are going on. Look at the, the horrors of communist China who will make you abort, murder your child if you have more than one. How do we stand up to the, the murdering regime of a man like Hitler? <laughs> well, y'all have heard a little bit about the greatest generation. There's a generation that did. <laughs> How can we face such terrible, awful consequences? Just believe what the Word of God says, number one. Do you believe that Jesus is resurrected from the grave? That's the starting point right there. I believe that Jesus is on the throne in heaven. I believe that He rules and super rules over the kingdoms of men. I believe that no matter what some poor child has not been taught or been taught, 
that He can enter the heart of a child of God, penetrate their dead and sin's heart, and give them life. He doesn't need the preacher. He doesn't need the gospel. He doesn't need the missionary. He just takes His Spirit and goes where He will. <laughs> He's not bound. Do you believe that this morning? <laughs> I believe it with all of my heart. God is not dead, and God is not bound. We go back to our text this morning in Psalms 2 as we close. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Why would a man as smart as Charles Darwin come up with the idea that we came from monkeys? When you say it like that, it just kind of sounds silly, doesn't it? It's because they don't want God to have an impact or an influence. Why would a man as smart as Nietzsche come up with, we need a superman, when there's already a superman in place? By the way, who does that sound like? Who's always trying to imitate God? <laughs> Satan's always trying to imitate God. He wants to make his own thing to worship. Why do the kings of this earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord? Now here's the key. And against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. That means they'll be confused. Listen. God does not need to be removed from politics, from sociology, from the political sciences. But one of the ways that you can see the Lord has these types of regimes in derision is when you see something like what is going on today in the transgender movement. You know, here are the proponents of the transgender movement, and finally somebody allows a man to compete with women, and he completely blows them away because he's a man. See? And so now they're fighting amongst themselves. Y'all get that? You know, the women's rights are fighting with the transgender rights. That is an example of how the Lord has them in derision. Because when you follow out to its logical conclusion what they're saying, it's going to wind up them butting heads with each other. Does that make sense? Listen to me. It doesn't mean that we hate a person. It means that we love God's people. We love a person, but we don't love the sin. I don't love my own sin. I was talking with someone last night, and we were talking about depravity and hating our sin. And the fellow I was talking to said, Brother Tim, you can hate my sin too. <laughs> I said, well, I don't hate your sin as bad as I hate my own. You know, I don't hate myself, but I hate my sin. Thank goodness God loves me and he loves you, but he hates your sin. So then the question is, what is sin? How can I say to you, this is right, this is wrong, if there is no standard? You get it? I recently heard this. Some of y'all remember Barbara Walters. She was the big interviewer. She interviewed people all through her journalistic career. And she interviewed Larry King, who was another interviewer. He was Jewish. Remember Larry King? Some of you remember Larry? Always had the neat ties, you know? He was a good interviewer. So Barbara Walters interviewed Larry King. And in the interview, she asked him, she said, if there's one person in history that you could interview, who would it be? And without hesitation, Larry King said, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? Because Larry didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. Okay? He was Jewish. So Larry said, Jesus of Nazareth. And she said, why? <laughs> Larry said, because if he is who he claimed to be, that changes everything. You catch that? If Christ is who he claims to be, it changes everything. It changes the way you look at the world. It changes the way you look at biology. It changes the way you look at education. It changes the way that you look at psychology. It changes the way you look at politics. It changes the way that you look at social. It changes everything. If Christ is who he says he is. And that's 1 Corinthians 15. That's where Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. We have a hope that's beyond this humanistic world. We have a hope that's in glory one day where the King of Kings sits 
and reigns. <laughs> Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, he says to the kings of this world. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Satan's been on the move. You think about that hundred-year period and how God has been removed. Those men did not get together and coordinate with each other. You understand? But Satan was coordinating all of them in an effort to throw off the bands, the cords of God. In a hundred-year period. What do you think that we, each person in this room, if we embrace these truths and we apply them in our lives and we go out and we are not afraid to speak the truth in love, not in hate like is spoken and all the stuff that is gushing out online, but one-on-one -on -one with our interactions with our people that we are intimate with and that we know, our loved ones, our friends, what if today you made the decision, I'm going to embrace these things and I'm going to embrace the fact that in this life is not my only hope. What if you embrace that today and begin to go out and let that be your mantra in life? Looking at sociology and politics and psychology and all these different things, biology in a different way, in the way that God looks at it. I wonder what would happen around here within a hundred years. I can tell you what would happen. Revival, rejoicing, refreshing and a little bit of trouble will come along because when you start rocking the boat and when you rock the boat for God trouble's going to come but it's okay it's okay trouble came to our savior every day of his life and he kept on doing what he was directed and what he came to do I leave you this little poem that I put together on kiss the sun it's all based on Psalm 2 by the way Hadn't got it to music yet, but maybe we'll find a way. Kiss the sun, ye kings of men, for when you do not rule by him, his wrath you surely will engage, and thy kingdom perish from the way. Kiss the sun, yet heathen rage, asunder shall his bands we break, and counsel set against the Lord. They think to cast away his cords. Kiss the sun, in heaven he laughs, then speaks to them in holy wrath, my king still sits on Zion's hill to rule all nations at his will. <laughs> Thou art my son, hear God's decree. Kingdoms of men I give to thee to dash in pieces like a dish. Thou rod of iron, rule as you wish. Kiss the sun, O kings, be wise. Lest lift it up in your own eyes. So rule in fear, respect his name, lest thy small kingdom come to shame. I hope and pray that we will kiss the sun. We will honor the King of kings, the Lord of lords. No one will ever dethrone him. He'll never abdicate his throne. He sits now. Can you picture him there? Sometimes I just get the visual in my mind. I see the Ancient of Days sitting on His throne, peering down over from the throne room in heaven through that sea of glass that is before the throne. And perhaps at this very moment, He's looking down at Bethlehem Primitive Baptist Church where all of you are here gathered on this Sunday morning. I hope and pray that there's a smile on the King's face. And He's saying, there's a people that speak my name. There's a people that... Honor me as they should. May that ever be the case. And child of grace, there's no better way to honor the king 
You want to know, you say, well, I would really like to kiss the son. Then you walk that aisle and you come and follow him and you say, I'm an unworthy sinner saved by grace. God's given me life and I have no other place to turn. And the old church of God is your home <laughs> with the rest of us sinners. We'll give it opportunity as we stand and sing some song.